As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Economists should have known better. In 1980, under the direction of this man, Deng Xiaoping, the new paramount leader of the People's Republic of China, a small town across the border from Hong Kong was given special economic privileges to trade and do business with the outside capitalist world. The city at the time was only home to around 330,000 people, tiny by Chinese standards, because the country had just become the first nation in history to be home to over a billion people. In the 40 years since, Shenzhen, that once small town, has turned into one of the largest and most economically influential cities in the world. In 2018, it exceeded the GDP of its direct neighbour Hong Kong, a global centre of commerce that has stood for hundreds of years, and is now the eighth largest city in the world by total population. A huge change from an average-sized town just four short decades ago. Shenzhen's story is not unique in China. The country is home to hundreds of cities that are each economic powerhouses in their own right, and the reforms that started with a few select regions have been almost universally adopted nationwide. In that time, the economic development of China has done some major good for the country and the world. It has pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and made a lot of everyday consumer goods that we take for granted far cheaper than they would be if they were produced locally. But of course, it hasn't been without its problems, domestically and internationally. Perhaps the biggest of those problems within the country has simply been the expectation that this economic growth would continue forever. The country has been home to the most intense economic growth in history, and a lot of social, political and economic systems have become reliant on that growth continuing forever. Unfortunately for the country, that has led to a lot of systems that, in retrospect, favour short-term boosts to the economy at the expense of long-term economic stability. And now, 40 years later, the long-term may have arrived in some of the most unexpected ways imaginable. So, why are growth rates that would be remarkable in any regular economy such a problem in China? Similarly, why are things getting cheaper causing so many economists to become concerned about the country's economic health? How is a country with relatively low national borrowing facing a debt crisis? And finally, and perhaps most importantly, is this any different from the dozens of other times that economists and commentators have predicted the inevitable demise of the world's second largest economy? Now before we get too far into assessing China's current economic problems, we need to give the big disclaimer that the country obviously causes some international tensions, from proposed hostilities with one of the most technologically significant countries in the world, to human rights issues, and simply being a dramatic shakeup to the global status quo for the last century, which has had the USA exist as the de facto economic power. For these reasons, and others, it's perhaps understandable that people are eager to hear news about some kind of impending collapse in a country that is now the second most dominant economy in the world. But, just because people might want something to be true doesn't mean that it is, and it was just over a year ago that we had to make an entire video discussing why China wasn't going to collapse. Yet. But, since then, a few things have changed. The country has more or less completely reopened after the longest and most severe lockdowns in the world as a response to the global pandemic. The country's questionable case numbers were at least in theory maintained by extreme measures that controlled when people could leave their homes, go to work, go shopping, travel, start a business, or really do much of anything that generates economic activity. After these restrictions were lifted about a year ago, the hope was that economic activity would bounce back as people went out to do everything they weren't able to do while they were stuck inside for the better part of three years. This did happen, but it was not as intense as economists and the government predicted. The country went from posting close to double-digit annual growth rates from before the pandemic to around 5% today. 
Simply put, that means that year over year the Chinese economy is producing 5% more net goods and services in a given year than it was 12 months ago. A lot of media outlets and even some economists have pointed to this as a sign that the end is nigh for China, but they mostly fail to explain why. Now, 5% is low by Chinese standards, and it's following a trend of downwards growth statistics that have existed for just over a decade in the country. But that growth rate would be remarkable in most countries, let alone the second largest economy in the world. Advanced Western economies strive for a growth rate of around 2-3% annually, effectively half of what China is achieving. And even then, plenty don't achieve that. So why are economic growth figures that would be a miracle in the West considered a crisis in China? Well, it all has to do with expectations. If someone was earning $50,000 a year, but they'd planned their long-term budget around getting 10% annual pay increases every year, they might have taken on a bigger mortgage than they really should have, maybe had an extra kid assuming that their income would grow enough to cover those expenses, and generally adjusted their spending, saving and investing strategy based on an assumption of strong career growth. The comparison of personal income to a country's GDP is not perfect, but it should start to highlight the problem. GDP is a timed measurement. It effectively resets every year. Just like how much money a person has earned in a year also, by definition, resets every year. But they do both contribute directly to national or individual wealth and debt levels respectively over time. A higher GDP or a higher income will all other things being equal mean that a country or an individual can pay off debt and build up assets faster. And that's why things like debt to GDP is spoken about in economics as much as debt to income is in regular finance. This becomes especially important when it's considered that growth rates compound. The difference between a 5% and a 10% annual growth rate over a decade is almost double the end output. An economy with a $1 trillion GDP will have a $1.65 trillion GDP with a 5% growth rate, but a $2.71 trillion GDP with a 10% growth rate. China has built its economy around the assumption that growth would remain a lot stronger than 5% for a lot longer than it really has. A lot of major investments made by the government at all levels from individual to local, as well as companies within the country and perhaps most crucially individual households, were all predicated on the idea that the economy would continue to grow like it had been for the decades between 1980 and 2010. Commentators have poked a lot of fun at things like ghost cities, where entire cities were developed on the outskirts of existing major centres that could house millions of people, but never had anybody move into them so they sat mostly empty for years. Other commentators were quick to defend this practice, pointing to instances where these ghost cities ended up being fully populated. The reality, as with most things, lay somewhere in the middle. These development projects took investments from governments to provide infrastructure, companies to construct the buildings and provide amenities, and individuals to invest into apartments in a city that nobody lived in yet. With the country growing as fast as it was, the expectation was that eventually these areas would be filled by people moving into these new centres, and the rate in which that was happening meant that it only made sense to plan ahead. With that style of economic planning, any kind of drop in growth, even if it would still be strong by Western standards, could mean the difference between an entire city being filled up or remaining completely empty until everybody involved in the project runs out of money. This is just the first place where economists really should have known better. The simple fact that international migration rates from the country to major cities has been slowing for decades now, and for the first time in recorded history outside of a war, the population of China was decreasing, means that endlessly building with the expectation that the country will grow into things just wasn't going to last forever. Real estate has become the most obvious and problematic sector where this kind of expectation of strong future growth has encouraged optimistic recklessness at every level of the economy. But it's not the only place. Everything from infrastructure development to trade deals, all the way up to massive international projects like the Belt and Road Initiative, were made with the expectation that the Chinese economy would swiftly grow into markets that it wasn't yet big enough to fully utilize. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, overly optimistic future planning is one thing, but it doesn't constitute a crisis by itself. It might, though, when we consider the one thing that is still growing rapidly in China, debt. China has always had a reputation for being a prudent saver on a national and individual level. The country does have the world's largest foreign currency reserves, but it also has a rapidly growing pile of debt. China's national debt to GDP ratio is about 77%, which is up significantly in recent decades, but is still perfectly healthy. The USA by comparison has a debt to GDP ratio of around 122%, which is high, but still not really anything to be too concerned about. The thing with China though is that that's not the full story, and the country either intentionally or incidentally has fallen into a situation where none of their debt metrics look too concerning individually, but collectively they tell a very grim story. National debt only measures debt taken on by the national government. On top of that there is also provincial debt which is more concerning because provinces within China do not have the authority to print money so they can become insolvent. Exact value on provincial debt is hard to track down because all of the various regions report their borrowing in different ways. Some don't report it to anybody but the central government, and of course, potentially embarrassing economic statistics in China are frequently misreported anyway. A quick but very funny side note is that several stories of provincial governments painting their grass green, setting up completely fake pieces of infrastructure like drains that lead nowhere, and sticking rocks on top of rebar to make it look like flowers in a field, have been reported ahead of visits from central government officials. Of course, these are individual reports, but if they're willing to go to that much effort and do that much damage just to keep face when high-level government officials come to town, it's not outside the realm of possibility that they would also massage financial figures. Anyway, the best estimates by Goldman Sachs put total provincial debt in China at the equivalent of over 23 trillion US dollars, effectively 150% of the country's total economic output, on top of the 77% from the national government. That provincial borrowing was mainly done to fund big infrastructure projects with the anticipation that the country's industry would grow and to fill them, as we discussed earlier. Major cities all over the country were becoming very wealthy by being centres of industry and other regions did not want to be left behind. The main source of revenue for these municipal governments is selling state-owned land to developers on 70 or 99 year leases. But they can only sell that land if people are willing to buy property, and people are only willing to buy property if the local government was investing in big projects. Combined provincial and national government debt, if the estimates are correct, would be over 200% of the country's GDP, which is where alarm bells do start ringing in even the most resilient economies. Now to be fair, the individual states within the United States that we were using as a point of comparison do also have their own debts, and collectively they add up to 3.3 trillion US dollars in total borrowing. So still a significant amount, but a tiny, tiny fraction of provincial government borrowing in China, which is still overall a smaller economy in nominal terms. But a debt problem doesn't stop there. Unfortunately, far from it. A lot of borrowing to fund government initiatives in China is not done by the government directly, but instead through a series of thousands of state-owned companies. 
Large state-owned companies have been the primary driving forces behind major projects with less than amazing outcomes both within the country and internationally. The Belt and Road Initiative in particular, which was China's grand plan to fund infrastructure development in emerging economies to build out trade partnerships and spread their influence, was mostly funded and built out by state-owned companies like the China Construction Bank, China National Petroleum Corporation, and the China State Construction Engineering Corporation. The Belt and Road Initiative has not been a resounding success. It's led to a lot of lending that is looking unlikely to ever be repaid, and it's turning China into a global debt collector which is running contrary to the plan's original goal of getting developing countries around the world on side with China. Today it has more or less been abandoned as no major projects have been pushed anymore. At home the story is not much better for a lot of Chinese state-owned corporations. A lot of these companies are just regular property developers that would assist regional governments in building out cities. And of course that industry has been plagued with problems ever since the spectacular collapse of Evergrande. Which itself was not a state-owned company, but did bring a lot of other developers that were down with it. On top of all of this, companies like the China Railway Corporation have also overinvested into infrastructure based on the expectation of future growth, and have taken on debt burdens that would only be manageable if the country's economic activity continued to grow very rapidly. China's state-owned companies have total debts of over $15.6 trillion, bringing the running total to $52.3 trillion, or roughly 300% of the country's GDP. This is all before considering perhaps the most important indebted group, regular everyday households, which have also borrowed heavily, mostly to invest into real estate, which in major cities was amongst the most unaffordable in the world. Again, people bought into the dream of cities like Shenzhen going from a glorified fishing village to one of the global centres of commerce within their lifetime. Assuming that economic growth kept going, this success story could be replicated in hundreds of other cities around the country, and in many instances, it was. Family members pulling together their life savings to buy a rundown one-bedroom apartment in a complex with terrible building standards sounds foolish in hindsight, but if these cities continue to grow like they had been, it would be a good investment. Including household debt that has mostly been directed towards unproductive assets that are losing a lot of market value, the country now has a debt burden potentially as high as 360% of its GDP, and if that wasn't concerning enough already, it's becoming worse due to deflation. Now, in the past three years on this channel we have spoken a lot about inflation for obvious reasons, so I don't want to repeat too much here, but simply put, inflation is the general increase in the price level of goods and services in the economy, so deflation is the opposite. But then the question becomes, why are goods and services becoming cheaper in China, causing so many economists to get so worried? Theoretically, cheaper stuff should be a positive economic outcome, but it does cause some problems. For starters, it can be a sign of bigger underlying issues. This isn't a problem so much by itself, just like a faster heart rate isn't a problem by itself in the human body, but if it's unexplained and it goes on for long enough, it can be a sign of something else going very badly. Most deflation occurs when consumers aren't spending as much, because then businesses are forced to lower their prices to try and encourage consumers to make more purchases, and to compete with other businesses for the few consumers still spending. The reason that consumers would be spending less is either if they are earning less because employment is lower, or because they're worried about the future and are trying to save money. Either are bad in an economy. Deflation itself, if it goes on for long enough, can also dramatically slow down growth. A small amount of inflation can actually be a good thing for an economy so long as wages keep up with that inflation. A small bump in nominal wages every year can actually encourage people to go out and spend or invest their money, even if their real buying power hasn't actually increased. Deflation does the opposite. If money is buying more every year, businesses are going to find it harder to give people wage increases, and long term they might even need to reduce people's wages or lay them off. Even though people's incomes are technically becoming higher, it's harder for people to see it in the same way they would with a bigger number hitting their bank account every month. Other people with more money to spend and invest will also be less likely to do it, 
because if money is buying more every year, it just makes sense to sit on it completely risk-free, especially in an environment like China at the moment where investments that were once considered safe as houses are literally being demolished because it's no longer worth it to keep them standing. In China, this is especially bad because a lot of their economic growth still depends on low-cost manufacturing. If deflation persists and wages aren't lowered in line with it, then it will make their problems even more severe as they continue to lose their dominance in this industry to other regional rivals. Now, all of these issues have a common trend. They would be fine if the country still had double-digit growth. And of course, nobody can predict the future, least of all economists, but there was no reason to expect that now would be the time where their economy slowed down. By global standards, China is still, at best, a middle-income country, and a large part of their population still lives in relative poverty, so there was still plenty of headroom for economic prosperity. Of course, looking back, there are many reasons for this slowing growth, but we've already made several videos covering those issues, and they really do deserve a full-length explanation. So, in the interest of not being redundant, we've put all of those videos in a playlist that you should be able to click to on your screen now if you're interested in the full story. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye.